Welcome to the show, everyone. This is a light and shadow of coaching in and beyond organizations production, a documentary that was made to fund social impact through coaching for women in Kenya, and which has been ICF accredited with 10 CCEUs and recently has won the Alan Shoup Coaching for Social Good Honorable Mention Award from Institute of Coaching, a Harvard Medical School affiliate. This is only possible because of how all contributors had faith in the documentary bringing about change in others' lives by creating ripple effects of growth, change, and development. We believe that not everyone may need coaching, but that everyone deserves coaching and that coaching needs to be democratized to reach less privileged humans in our world. Today's episode is the third installment of conversations with coaches, leaders, educators who either donated to support coach training for women in Kenya or made an interview contribution to the documentary or sponsored the social impact initiative or actually do it all. They all have two things in common. They share their passion for social impact through coaching and love taking a holistic view at coaching from the light and shadow side of our practice. The goal of this series is to give you an intimate peek behind the curtains. What is social impact through coaching for our guests? And why does social impact matter for these coaches, leaders, and educators? You take a look at the messy ingredients that go into a successful coaching career that combines both the light and shadow side of coaching and how these two sides benefit our coaching practice. I'm your host, Tunde Erdush, and if you wish to ask a question, make a comment, or recommend a guest, I invite you to send me an email at podcast at coachingdoku.com. And well, I'm here with Michael Tichelmann, based in Austria, who, technically speaking, produced the documentary, and who I wish to have with me, as he will have insights into the nitty-gritty details of creating coherent stories without which learning would not be possible. Hi, Michael. Welcome. Hi, Tunde. And of course, my guest today is Zita de Rose, former president of ANZE, the Association of National Organizations for Supervision and Coaching in Europe, today an avid speaker, thought leader in coaching and supervision based in the Netherlands. Welcome, Zita. Hi, Tinder. Hi, Michael. Good to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. You're welcome. We really feel honored to have you here on this show today. And I mean it because, at least for me, there is something that I really, truly enjoy about you. Do you want to know? Yes, I, I, I'm very curious about that. Sure, please tell me. You know, this is your depth, your incisive way of looking at things, your capacity to, to unroot and deconstruct and reconstruct ideas in ways that bring so much food for thought and freshness to how we can reflect our realities. And you are so much fun. And I know all this because you have been one of the contributors in uh, one of the interviews I conducted to make the documentary we are going to talk about. Thank you for having welcomed me to your world the way you have so far, Zitze, and the very fact of choosing to be here today. Well, you're most welcome. Uh, I'm a bit flabbergasted. Perhaps I read too much French philosophy, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Because of this deconstructing and reconstructing, you know, it made me think of uh, Derrida, for instance, and Foucault or whatever. But that, you know, that's just a remark on the side. And that's who you are. That, that, that makes yeah. you so beautifully unique, I think, at least. 
Well, thank you. That's great. Zitze, is there something that you yourself would like to add about yourself on top of what I have mentioned? Something that you deeply wish our audience to be aware of? One of the things that I find fairly important about our trade is that there should be good publications. And, uh, and then I mean uh, magazines uh, on a regular basis, but also books. You are one of the guys that wrote beautiful, important books and also articles. And I would like to make known that there is something like an answer journal, online journal, which also regularly publishes on supervision and coaching. I was happy to be on the, uh, the editorial board, the chief editor, as it was called, until the end of last year. And it's now being run by Agnes Turner, mm. uh, also my successor as president. For me, that's important that that goes on. And, and what makes it important for you? Then I think that we should, uh, if you want to develop things, and if you want to get better, then you should do two things. Firstly, take very seriously, not what's going okay to take seriously, but very seriously what is still wrong with it, the shadow mm. side of coaching, the unwanted effects. Uh, and the only way of doing that is having this kind of conversation and having good articles that dare to, to address the problems of it, not oh. only the good things. Yeah. And that has to go on. So you want to, uh, I think I would like to, to leave some heritage as we all do. I think. Thank you for saying that and appreciating this, this moment of how we are seeking to keep on the conversations, this channel, as you're saying, so having conversations you're acknowledging that this is the keep up and then you are paying attention to the heritage. Sounds beautiful. Yeah. There is another reason for that. That is because the coaching, there is a problem about the, what every, you know, what is actually coaching? How do you define it? But that's another problem. But coaching, grosso modo, has become very normal. In the beginning, about 20, 25 years ago, let's say 30, 25 years ago, it was something very special, a, no a novelty. People uh, went after it, you know, especially businessmen, you know, you, you, it would heighten your status if you have a coach. But it's now grown and spread so far and it's grown so widely that it's become very normal and we have to operate on a market. And that means that we are steered in all kinds of directions we possibly do not always want to be. And therefore, critique and thinking needs to, to go on to keep up the pace of coaching, but also to steer it in the way we want it. Just uh, last week, in one of Austria's biggest uh, online publications, there was an article about coaching how the market is growing and how mainstream it's becoming. But also there was a lot about the negative side of coaching or coaches who are not qualified. So I think many coaches or the influx of new coaches were just started in the last 10 to 15 years. What's your opinion? Do they search for publications? Are they interested in academic works on coaching? Let me say it this way. In the Netherlands, apparently, there are something like 100,000 coaches who registered themselves with the different chambers of commerce. Only who registered themselves with the chambers of commerce are 100,000. The membership of uh, the uh, coaching associations and supervision associations in the Netherlands is not more than 10, 12,000. Mm. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of coaches, I know them here, even here in the place I live, a small town in the Netherlands, 
lots of coaches that didn't bother to register themselves with chambers of commerce. So this article, as far as I'm concerned, you refer to is correct. Mm-hmm. That means that lots of coaches, uh, people calling themselves coach, do things that nobody knows where they where they get it from, what they what it's based on. And I I'm very much afraid they hardly do read anything else than uh, a book of seven steps to uh, to happiness. This is a bit of a joke, but you understand what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the more serious people that uh, coaches and colleagues that uh, and supervisors that are members of associations, uh, you know, present themselves on the market or in the world as professionals. So I profess that I have this profession, that I have this trait, that I carry this trait, and I want to be responsible for it. And that means that they should read and study and and have conversations and deal with critique. Mm. And uh, my impression from the Netherlands is that that even this segment of, uh, of colleagues could do better. That's too often, uh, but that's, you know, that's my perception, too often only methods. Mm-hmm. Methods are necessary and it's okay, but it's only a small part of real coaching. Yeah. So it's interesting that, 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 that our conversation is taking a natural flow into this way of like, what does the market look like? Which is also one of the the topics that we are addressing um, in the documentary. I was meaning to ask Michael, so actually like, Michael, is there something that you would like to say about you as well, on top of me welcoming you to this show and also the first two times, is there something that you would like to to say about yourself that the audience should be aware of? Yeah, I think uh, different than you or all our other guests, I'm no coach by trade and I'm just recently entered the world of coaching. So I'm more of a novice. My my question is in terms of coaching, I think it's really hard to define coaching today because if you search for coaching, there's so many different kinds of coaches, sports coaching, business coaching, life coaching. So yeah, I'm, I'm really eager to learn what, what does coaching mean for different people or different professions. So it is a matter of concern, right? As Zita is saying, and we came naturally to this idea of like, what does the market look like and, and what's going on there and why articles are important. What do you think? What would you expect if you had a coach? What would you expect a coach to um, to demonstrate? Would you be interested? Would you want that coach to be engaged in reading and writing articles? What would be of importance to you as a, on, the, on the receiving end? As, as a coachee, I would say... My main concern would be the quality of the coaching, not per, not certainly the method. It would be more about the results and how the relationship is and how the outcomes are. As I understand it today, I could go in three or four different coach for various topics. So I could go to a life coach to talk about my life. I could go to a business coach to how to better my uh, career opportunities. But in the end, my main concern would be the outcome. Mm. Zitze, how are you relating to what Michael is saying in terms of what he's interested in when he's on the receiving end? I think that uh, uh, for coaches, it is very important to listen more possibly than we do to what clients want and what not only clients want, but what society, other people, uh, 
general public thinks of coaching. That may be rather disconcerting sometimes, but it is very important to understand in what kind of world we, we move. The, the big problem of all uh, trades is that they are turning too much inside and start defining their services from their position uh, only and not listening to my, the Michaels in this world and others that, uh, that possibly even are uh, uh, not very nice about coaching, but they have a message. We should listen to it. That's, that's one. Secondly, getting into this, it's a matter of great concern to, uh, to coaches and to uh, writers and thinkers about our trade how to organize uh, and define coaches, but also how to organize it and in, in order to be able to organize a body of knowledge. Because if coaching is practically everything, what can be our body of knowledge? Mm -hmm. And if we do not have a clear body of knowledge and dexterity, then, uh, then how can we uh, be clear to our clients? So you see in many publications, and I'm now referring to, for instance, the Sage Handbook of Coaching, and then especially to an article of Simon Western, uh, that you see many uh, uh, ways in trying to define and organize coaching in, 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 in a certain way. And perhaps it's good to say that Western, and I just take it from him, uh, distinguishes four types of coaching. By the way, uh, they present themselves, or uh, how, do, how do you call it, in the way they talk about their trade. This, this, so this is a discourse analytical approach. So it's not only the methods, but what is the total amount of ideas on, on script, but also in the heads, what, how, it's, how they're talking about it, how they present themselves, how they relate with the general culture. And he distinguishes four types. Generally, the one is the soul he calls it the soul guide, the personal coach who focuses on uh, your spirituality, your, your journey through life you have to take, uh, what's your real meaning in this, this world, that kind of thing. Uh, you have uh, the uh, what he calls the psi expert, and that's the sort of coach you see more in business and organizations who uh, is more concerned with the outer self, so to speak, his words. Of coaches, so your emotions, your identity, your spiritual growth, your existential questions are only playing a supporting role in bettering, uh, enhancing your performance. So the psy coach is mainly focusing on your performance and enhancing it. So your question is uh, the outcome that could uh, be a sort of idea for a psy coach. Why do you perform better? Then you have the managerial coach that is more interested in uh, and more focusing on uh, the uh, productivity and on your role in, in changing roles in organizations. So he's from organizational point of view and looks at people who they play their role, even if it's only for a few weeks properly. How can they, they play their role even better so that they get that are more productive? And how do they manage to change their role from the one to the other? as, uh, as the, their bosses or the owners of the company want him to. So he is focused on productivity. And finally, the network coach, that's actually a very interesting uh, coaching identity, so to speak, because that's probably more of the future, even now already. Uh, and he is focused or she is focused on, um, focuses mainly on uh, connectivity. 
and on playing the network and and, and, and looking for power. Where, where are the intersections where you can be affected? Now, this is, of course, just one possible uh, idea of making a little bit clear what coaching is or should be. Uh, but still, uh, it's good to understand that you need to understand that this is just only a scheme framework. And in reality, all these different types of coaching may combine. Still, the question is, how does this help and serve the public? Yeah. So you have been sharing like very richly um, the, the four types. Would you be happy for our audience to just name the four once again for us to remember? Yeah, this is from Simon Western. It's not from me. It's from Simon Western, published in a Sage Handbook of Coaching. I think the letter edition is 2019 or something like that. He distinguishes between the, the coach as soul guide Soul guide, yes. Yeah, as psi expert or technician of the soul. Okay, technician of the soul. The managerial coach. Managerial coach. And the network coach or emergent strategist. The emergent strategist, the network coach. Oh, wow. Zitze, if we take a look at this, like how coaching per definition, per design is, is spreading around us and in us and through us and with us. On one hand, and then kind of like the quest that the documentary is trying to 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 be on around democratizing coaching. Where do you see the light and the shadow side of this of democratization in the first place? Like given the this the mushrooming of all this and what Michael also said, like there is so much out there. What's your take on that? Well, the, if if I take the uh, meaning of this documentary and this podcast and this and your whole uh, adventure, this the idea is to support uh, women in Kenya by offering them the uh, possibility of acquiring coaching capabilities. That is very important. That's something that possibly is needed there. And one thing is that you probably go there and ask them what they need. One thing that appeals to me, as far as I know a little bit about Africa, but not much, uh, I've only been there uh, in a limited way, as far as I know, if you want to change societies, uh, then you can better start with the women, uh, because they are closer, generally speaking, to life than most men. This This is generalizing, but still. So it appeals to me that you start with, or this project starts with the women, and tries to enable uh, and help them and to help them acquire capabilities, coaching capabilities. Whether it's coaching capabilities in any sense of coaching, I couldn't care less. If it's if it's only the capabilities they need, they should tell us what they need. And actually, this also goes uh, mutatis mutandis for the clients in the Netherlands or in Austria or in England. What they need is should be leading. But that's the that's the light. And then we can play our role together with the, the, uh, the philosopher, together with the, the the dance teacher, and not because we know so much more or understand so much. But then we can can play a role. That's the light side. The shadow side is that if we, that we start very easily to tell them what they should know, that we have an idea how this person or that person uh, should change his soul, to get more spiritual, to get more of a, a performer, to get more of a role player, etc. Or an emergent strategist. And there things can go wrong. It's interesting what you're saying, Zitze, because when we did the pilot project January this year, I went down without any plan 
uh, I had no program in place. I didn't know how to train the women. And it was actually on meeting the, I have a liaison partner. I wasn't doing it alone by my by myself. So I have somebody in Kenya to guide me. And we were sitting for a whole week firsthand. Each day we were sitting down for eight hours each day talking about what matters to these women in this place, in this part of the world. And it took us a week to to bricolage, you know, to put together some sort of framework, but a very loose one, fully well aware that we, would, we didn't know what, what sort of women would be coming to the training anyways. So to keep it flexible enough, and then to our surprise, what happened was that those women were speaking a language that I don't master. And that's the language of faith and religion, Catholic faith. They speak through the Bible, and what I learned while we were bricolaging the program is that when I was reminded by my liaison partner, when I was trying to bring in uh, concepts, ideas that we in the westernized world know about coaching, like, for example, presence, she said, Tunde, forget it. This is not going to work. Coaching presence, because this is, of course, we needed to kind of like uh, call the competencies and, and teach the competencies to a certain extent, because we were... We were hoping to receive the ICFCCUs, okay? So this is also a little bit of a, a political thing. And then she said, today, it doesn't make sense to talk about presence because these women don't know what that is. And then I asked her, so what would they call it? What would these women call presence? And then they would, and she said, you know, they, they call it like connectedness, which we also know as a word. And then, then she said something else as well. So we, 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 we started kind of like recrafting the whole idea of how to train and what language to use in the first place so that the women could connect to what was going on. And eventually, what I found to my own surprise is after the training, that the entire training, she they were speaking the biblical language, whatever they were saying in response to what was coming from us, they were responding with biblical language. And to my surprise... I found that there is not much difference between the language of the Bible and the language that we use or, or the concepts that we use in coaching. We just call it something different. Yeah, that's 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 I, re I recognize this very much. I used to live in South Africa for years, long time ago, and I recognize that uh, uh, it, you are then in the position like Margaret Mead, uh, the as the cultural anthropologist. You know, trying to understand the tribes in the what is it, Pacific, on Pacific Islands, uh, about 50, 60, no, 100 years ago, and others. And what you are describing has, has nothing to do with our idea of coaching in itself. Uh, it has to do with making contact. And of course, that's, that's probably the most important part of coaching, too, but not only of coaching. Uh, secondly, the, the, it has to do with cultural differences. And it's very, what you say is very true. This whole idea of coaching that EMCC and ICF are rolling out or trying to roll out all over the world is mainly a Western and actually even a, a more precisely a more, a Anglo Saxon concept. Mm. Or, uh, this whole, uh, uh, with all the ideological uh, uh, ballast which belongs to that. And it's good to understand that that uh, coaching now uh, in our part of the world developed uh, itself during the last 30 or so years. 
uh, in exactly the same time that what is called the neoliberal economy also blossomed since about the, the late uh, 70s. Now, th this suggests a certain correlation. It's not, not a causal relation, that's too simple, but a certain correlation you may assume. And that means that in our uh, part of the world, coaching is subject to what we call, what you could call commodification. Mm. And that links up with the uh, neoliberal commodification of the self that people. Professionals, and including coaches, have to be able to sell themselves, actually sell their uh, capabilities, uh, their competencies on the market, but not only their competencies and capabilities anymore, but themselves. Because mm. it's very important for uh, employers uh, who you are, how you are. What you, what is important to you? What's your passion? What can, how can you be the, the, how can you develop into the better version of yourself? Which is all, all the way referring to the concept of self, which is a very Western and uh, concept. That's okay as it is. Uh, although I personally think it's not so okay to be honest, uh, because it means commodification of the self means in fact that you are a brand, or you have to present yourself as a brand, and you lose yourself. You objectify yourself into a customer um, and a function to to keep this system of production and consumption going in a faster and faster. Now, if you can, places like Africa, where they have the same sort of problems. I hear it from my brother who's in Ethiopia, especially in the bigger cities. They're not so much better or others than than uh, than we are, but certainly if you are at quieter places then the pace of life is a little bit slower and people there, if they talk about in biblical language or not, they are they are more grounded than we are. Perhaps that's a bit too romantic, but I still think it's true. They worry about no normal human traits, like uh, listening to the cry of the baby, uh, seeing that house, uh, household is the, the household chores are done, uh, that you have food for the for the day, day and that you etc. This is what, especially the upper and the middle class that can pay for our coaching services, is, is very much far away from. Where do you see like this commodification by which I understand that you mean that kind of like coaching becomes kind of like a commodity, a product. Yeah. Uh, and then the coach in this, in the relationship with the product is the brand. What is, in what way is this a, a shadow side of of coaching, why, why would what, what what about the shadow side of this? Well, if you took generally speaking, to this is a matter of definition, which is always the case with language. To commodify, to as I understand it, uh, and I remember it slightly from Karl Marx even, is uh, to relate to a product or service as an object that can be bought and sold on the market. In our case, on the market of well-being and happiness. For the most part only attainable uh, by uh, uh, middle class or upper middle class clientele that are able to or who are able to foot the bill or in a position to have the bill paid for it by, by their employers. So it's partly also a class thing. Uh, but the, the, the shadow side of that is that, that you make, uh, you turn your services into marketable objects. And if you, coming back to what I said before, if you are a professional and you have to stay uh, ahead of developments in the market. You want to keep earning your uh, your uh, upkeep, uh, earning your life. 
then you have to more and more sell yourself, not only your capabilities, but yourself on that market, especially coaches. And that means that at the same time that you want to be authentic, you, you on the other hand, that's let's say the light uh, side of coaching, at the same time, you can only be authentic in that market if you sell yourself as an object that is interchangeable, that is uh, measurable, etc. So we are here in a very difficult sort of situation, which I th I'm afraid coaches are not sufficiently aware of. I don't blame anybody about this, but I'm trying to understand what's happening. Yeah. So, and I would like to ask Michael about this because he's on the receiving end. Uh, Michael, how is it for you? Like when you when you think of the of the field of coaching and then coaches, does it matter to you that we are, for example, having this discussion about the light and shadow side of commodification of coaching? To what extent are you bothered by this? On the one hand, I think if we look back the last 20 years, coaching for sure has been more attainable through the commodification as a service. I think it's much easier today than it was 10 years ago to have some form of coaching in person or online. But on the other hand, I would say it's really hard to quantify coaching, especially if you are not uh, an expert in this field. And so it's really hard to evaluate what are you getting as a kind of customer in this sense what what is good coaching what's good value if you say it's an object and service then you have to think about what option would be suitable for you so i would say my fear would be that it's now more available but in terms of quality it's really hard to gauge what is the benefit or do i really uh, always benefit from coaching so to say isn't, isn't there the opportunity that my trust or my relationship with the coach could be in some way harmful for me or in the long term? That reminds me of a certain American businessman or actually CEO, as it's called now, uh, from the 40s, uh, 30s and 40s of General Motors, Alfred Sloan, who developed the concept of first in the automobile industry in the United States. First, we have this class market. We make few very complicated machines, you know, beautiful cars for the, for the, for the happy few, for the absolute elite, especially the money elite. And then you see the T Ford, for instance, you see the rapid, uh, rapid growth of the mass market. Ford, T Ford was just one model. He produced for 10 or 15 years with only one color because that's easy, etc. On the on the and that's for the master, so that everybody could buy a T4 or later a Volkswagen and what have you. And then uh, Sloan said, you know, then we need to, and we are now moving into a class mass market. We have a few standard models, few standard frames, and we com not commodify, we uh, customize these machines with beautiful outsides and just extras and window uh, uh, swipers and what have you and beautiful things, radios in it and television sets and what have you. But the, the funny, and this also happens with coaching, to my mind. This, you could use this metaphor. This coaching is spreading, as you say, Michael, indeed. It's more available. 
to not only the upper middle class, but to, to the middle class. And it will be bought uh, wholesale sale by companies to train or coach their employees if they want it or whether they want it or not. But this is the, the mass market of coaching. And now you see that people try to brand themselves as very special. They have their own niches on the market, etc. And they have very special uh, 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 methods and, and ways of thinking and approaching you and this but the, the basics are rather the same if i think back on our conversation uh, i see three important topics one would be that through this coaching itself seems to be devalued i would say because it's more attainable so you will have much more competition and one other aspect, uh, if we then look to the coaching organizations, especially coming from England or America, they're kind of exporting their methods and way of thinking throughout the world as the automobile makers did, because now they mostly don't manufacture or try to outsource manufacturing to different countries. So are we facing this in coaching too? Yes. And yeah. 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 And lastly, I think coaching is not about objects. It's about people. At least that's my understanding. And if you try to develop this market, aren't you creating products or coaches who try to brand themselves with special niches, which in the end don't really are required, only created through the market? to be pushed as products onto people. Yeah. yeah that, that, that's, that's what I understand from Alfred, from this uh, metaphor of Alfred Sloan, indeed. Yeah. Uh, and I would like to bring in, um, sorry for interrupting you, but it's, I would like to bring in um, a very special personal experience of mine um, around being in this machinery of commodification myself. Because we are talking about like out there, and I was like, while I was listening, I thought, wait a second, like how about the how about the coach in that machinery and in this process of commodification? Because when I was doing my business development, or I thought that I had to do business development because it's out there in social media, everybody does must do so uh, business development because you have to have your leads and you have to have your niche and you have to have this and. I really got seduced by by this fear mongering that if I don't do business development, then I'm crap on the market and that I will not have clients and then I am not good enough and I, I will be left behind. And I was, if I may say, really shocked by my own reaction, although I think I'm a quite established somebody in, in my business, still I was sucked in. I felt really seduced. Driven by my fear and this fear mongering, I was I took it on this energy from from the outside world and found myself then in the end totally depleted after half a year of business development that got me nowhere, cost me a lot of money, but most importantly, it's not about this and I made an investment, but about how I I was realizing that I got disconnected from myself, who I was and who I am who I believe I am as a coach and got connected with that energy. So I fell out of love with, with, with who I am as a coach and fell in love with the machinery. That's actually what I'm taking away as a shadow side from this, where I thought, 
if this is happening to me, when actually I don't have to be afraid, there's nothing that, that is fear of what? There is no danger at all. If it happens to me, then to how many people will it happen actually out there? To how many coaches who are potentially trapped in the same, same sucked up in this energy of fear mongering so that the, the business development market can grow by giving us tools and I don't know what to be able to sell. I, I was really kind of sad afterwards and I got sick. I would, my, my body really collapsed and I, it took me a while to recover. It's like, is this, is this what, where I want to be? Is this what I want to be part of? What are we doing to ourselves? Are we aware? What is the meta reflection level that we are taking when we are looking at, at the soul of coaching, if there is any? What is your take yeah. on this? The soul of coaching, but uh, this is a bit uh, Yaolom, if I pronounce it slightly, this, this is psychiatrist, uh, because he is not the only one, you can also go to Nietzsche, for instance, but uh, the, 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 this therapy and coaching supervision, uh, the, what we do is what we try, with not, not only the, the supervisor or the coach, but also the coachee and supervisee, is to reflect on what happened, what we did, what what we could do better, etc. That in itself is okay. There's not, nothing against that. But it it means that you have to be subject of yourself to be to be able to just as you just said so beautifully to to be authentic to to feel that this is me, this is what I really feel or need, this is what I ask, and on the other hand, reflecting, make an object to yourself. That's a split. That's of that's of the general human condition. That's not specific for coaching, but in coaching or in supervision, in our trade, we just play on it so hard that we that we run the danger of not being able to get this together again. That's that's on the coaching side, and this interferes or there's interference with what we just discussed: the societal and uh, economic, social economic pressure of going faster, 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 and faster. Not only as a supervisor or a coachee or as a citizen, but also as a coach. So what you, what happened to you is very understandable. Mm. The better you want to be as a coach, the, the greater the danger is that you run out of the rails. That's the tragedy of it. Sorry, uh, I didn't pick it up acoustically. What was it said that you run out of? Uh, you uh, derail. You ran out of you the derail. rails. So that we derail. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Ah, okay. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? Mm. That's the danger. So how to how to... Uh, that's not only a personal, that, that's very important. It's not only or perhaps even in the first place a personal thing. It's also a political and societal thing. So when, so we're, picking up this, when we're picking up this societal thing uh, uh, and connecting with the documentary again, and, and its very purpose of creating social impact, does it have, and, where, and if so, where does it have any place creating social impact? Is there any social impact that we can create then? In the face of commodification, well, it's, 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 uh, on the practical level, picking your picking your clients, and your clients pick you, but you can also pick your clients. Are you going to coach a team of uh, of uh, lawyers that just find all legal loopholes to make it possible for certain uh, uh, oil companies to totally not pay for the the the, the ravage they cause? In, for instance, in Nigeria, and make it possible that there are twenty that there are legal suits that 
take 20 years and then uh, end up in a defeat for the, the local peoples whose uh, country is totally destroyed by this company. Is this what you, so picking your clients is politically important. So what is social impact then actually? How would you define social impact? Well, you could you could pick positively, pick uh, uh, clients or, or try to support if they want you. Uh, for instance, people that uh, are, that try to uh, to move away from this destructive uh, circularity of consumption and and, uh, and production, and uh, have a good look uh, about the the urgency of the climate problem. These clients you could pick if if they want you. Uh, that what I mean is by these examples is you have to take as a citizen of our countries you have to take a stand. As a coach, you are also a citizen and not only a coach. So if you want to make social impact, you have to do what I'm now referring to Hannah Arendt, what real citizens are supposed to do if they like it or not, because it's not always so nice. And that is take a stand. Mm. And coaches could also take a stand. That's very different from the idea of, you know, not taking a position, uh, uh, you know, because you only want the people themselves to find out and take a position. Picking your clients, taking a stand, make known what you are, what you are fighting for. Like you know, uh, for instance, uh, supporting women in Kenya. Yeah. That, that may make an impact. And even if you don't see it making an impact, it still makes an impact. That's the Bible. Just, just you know, be a be a believer here. <laughs> so, so, so what I'm hearing is that there is this commodification of coaching that is that turns into into coaching being a business and coaches being business people versus social impact coaching that is about taking a stand, you're saying, so assuming responsibility for how I am as a, as a social citizen, as a citizen of this planet. Yeah, oh, but you, you can also have a businessman in your, uh, as clients. And then for, I could refer to, for instance, uh, Mitzberg, who is very, very critical of the way businesses are, you know, commercial businesses, uh, multinational businesses are run. Very critical from the point of view of the climate, from the point of view of the exploitation of human resources, which is people like you and me, human resources. Just, just imagine calling people human resources. What does that mean? Uh, are we going to coach human resources to get better human resources, to get more out of them, like mining? But then you have, like, for instance, Manfred gets the freeze. You have to you, you move into a world of very well, uh, of of people that are totally identify most of them with the with what they are doing, with the success of their company, with the bonuses, etc. You can do it, but the, the the problem is, what are you doing with that? What is the stand you take? So I I, I do not have solutions. I'm afraid of solutions. And if I look back at my own career as a coach, especially as a supervisor, but still as a coach too, uh, it's for my for me it now it's easy talking because I, you know, I'm preaching things that I didn't do uh, half of the time. I didn't do this at all. I tried to the last part of my career. So it's so, not easy. So what made you successful um, throughout your career? You are um, a different generation than I am. Uh, and you were an early adopter, so to speak. What, what, which had its its own charms and characteristics, and and 
and ways of being as, as a coach and also supervisor, because that's who you are too. And you, you have been the president of, of, of ANSI, so you have been a representative of that field as well. What do you think made you successful? I was ambitious uh, because otherwise you, you don't get there, but uh, I lost lots of my ambition uh, during the, the ride, so to speak. And I'm not now I'm not very interested in success. Perhaps perhaps success is not a good parameter. Don't try to be successful and just do the, do the things that need to be done. That need to be done, not necessarily what you want to do, mm. uh, but need to be done. And the funny thing is, if you do what needs to be done as from your position and your possibilities, then probably you get closer to yourself than, uh, than if you do the things you think mm. you like to. But now I'm preaching a little bit. I sound like I sound like I sound like a, a pharaoh. I said, but I, I, I really mean it. Actually. Yeah, and this is what where where you are today with with I, I well I, I don't think that you are preaching just preaching because you have grown into the the person that you are because you were embodying I think what you are saying and not just. Yeah, of course, retrospectively, now you are talking about something and but also due to your experience and your circumspection and your interest in the field, I really think that you're hiding your lights in saying that. And I, I, because knowing you, I think that you have been embodying what you're saying. But this is probably like, I I, I, I take a stand on this. And I, I if I feel into you, I think that this is... You're too humble in saying that you're preaching this because I think that you wouldn't be where you are today and who you are today, both in your role and in your identity, if you hadn't been embodying what you have just said. Well, you know, it's uh, one of the things that um, that comes from my family, my especially my mother, is don't take yourself too serious. Humbleness is a good thing. Humility is a good thing. Yeah, I go find ahead. it interesting in terms of how much uh, we consume and where can we find this humility and doesn't uh, reflection and realization uh, on what is the right thing to do as you hold on, we should do. How, how can we find a place for this in this ever-changing and ever more uncertain a world we are living in today. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, this is a very fundamental question. Yeah, I don't <laughs> expect to have uh, an answer. It's just well, let me let me say that uh, I had an aunt. She she died a long time ago. Um, who during World War II uh, was engaged in, in so-called illegal work when the the Netherlands was occupied by Nazi Germany. So she was caught. They put her in jail. She was not a big fish, so otherwise she would not have survived, probably. But she was severely interrogated, you know. Where do you get these papers from? Who do you know, etc.? And she kept her mouth shut. And this is an example of what I could call civil courage of a sort of a of a woman that nobody noticed, especially. She was not very special. She was in later life, she was um, uh, a civil servant in a, in a local uh, community, a uh, very nice woman, but once in her life she just took a stand. I can only repeat that we have to try to take a stand, even if, and that's the problem, even if we do not know what for all the time exactly, and what will happen all the time exactly. 
and even uh, taking a stand may uh, may have effects that you do not control. Mm. But we cannot we cannot be neutral. Being neutral is in fact also taking. And then you sh for sure know that that it goes on and on and on. That's yeah, a very moving story. Yeah, Michael. Mm -hmm. I think this uh, reminds me of a conversation we had uh, in the past on the podcast that realizing one's agency, if you just uh, don't participate, shouldn't you have done something or at least uh, have some kind of agency to influence your life? Because at the end, I think responsibility and taking your action is something uh, you can always do or at least try to do. Yeah. Yes. And, and this is even truer for, if I may say, but maybe I'm kind of like just too, too bold when saying this, even truer for coaches, because if, but maybe it's not true. Huh? Maybe that's why I'm saying I'm proposing something very bold here. And this is what I'm addressing in the documentary as well. Like, where is the, like, if we don't do, because we are now co talking about coaching and supervision, if we don't do, have a stand and are aware, like, what kind of stand we are taking, who should but maybe it's too bold to say. Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure if it's too bold. We are we are now living in a world that uh, the world is always uh, dangerous. Uh, it's not only today. It's in the 50s, we had the fear of the the bomb you know, dropping on a, on top of our heads, etc. I still remember that people were really scared at that time. Uh, but now we have you know uh, wars all over the place, uh, not uh, but also in Ukraine. So you may encounter colleagues from Ukraine. Then the, uh, they may appeal to you to take a stand. Then you have to think. Hmm. You have to take a stand. If and you know being neutral here will not help you because it will be interpre interpreted as oh he's shying away and he's not helping us. Now, if you also have Russian colleagues taking a stand, is going to be a hell of a lot. And you like all these people is. It, taking is a hell of a lot more difficult that but you cannot escape it and uh, so this is just another example in the netherlands and in more in other countries there is this discussion about uh, part of the dutch history which is uh, the slavery you know the slave trade or the the, the transatlantic slave trade where, where the dutch were involved in and this is a very interesting discussion Sometimes it, it flames up very high because the, the people want to take away statues, etc., of of these slave traders and the and the captains of, uh, of these ships. But it is absolutely necessary to listen to the people that have these complaints and that 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 actually say this is also part of not only our history as as a family of slaves, but also your history. Uh, there is no escaping that. So and you see lots of people say, well, you know, it's a long time ago. I didn't do it. No, that's true. You didn't do it. But it's also about your history. Are you going to listen to these people? So I can have many examples. Coaches are just as everybody else, citizens in the first place and only in the second place, coaches. And as citizens, you have to take a stand and not taking a stand is also a stand. So it's some sort of moral obligation and making a choice around really who I am. Yeah, yeah, beyond, yeah. beyond beyond the who I am is who I am, who yeah. I am, how I'm yeah. reflecting from a meta reflection who I am. That's very yeah. interesting. Uh, um, Zita, I have actually, I, I, I wanted to ask you about one thing because I know that you, 
we may not come fully and deeply into the topic today, but in connection with democratizing coaching and actually the very essence of this, the, the, the purpose of, of the documentaries, and I, I keep coming back to that to, to remind ourselves is that is to democratize, to make it available to less privileged people in the world. And now we have today in the 21st century a means how to do so, which is digitalization. In what would be your the most important message in terms of light and shadow uh, to our audience when it comes to the, the aspect of digitalization in connection with all that we have said today? Okay. Uh, first, a preliminary remark, uh, making coaching available to the, let's say, the poor, uh, that's fine, but what they mostly need is uh, better income, better salaries, which requires very rich people to pay taxes. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, this is Rutger Brechtman, uh, who had, uh, and he's quite right, or Piketty. Um and uh, so what we have this racer, Max Verstappen, who all the time wins these GP, or, or how do you call it, these motor, these, uh, these uh, races. Uh, he's a Dutchman, and he lives in uh, Monaco and doesn't pay any tax. The moment he started winning races, he didn't, and he is not the only one. That should stop. That's a political thing. But um, uh, the first thing that you that, that needs to be done to, to get quite more equality, to help the poor is better, better, um, uh, salaries, better income, etc. And only then we can uh, we can see what what uh, what other f- facilities we can make available to them: water, electricity, etc. And only then we get into the more luxurious thing. And coaching can be one of that. So that's just a preliminary. Coaching cannot um, replace the uh, material. Uh, you know, how do you call this? Substrate needs, of, yeah, the basic, the basic need. need, and that's and that's that's a big problem. There are too many people that have no access to basic need. Mm. Or to basic. Uh, secondly, uh, digitalization can help uh, enormously. Like what we are doing now, no, it's beautiful. Uh, but uh, as as I wrote in the as, as you have seen, uh, we have to be very careful for, with the security of it. We have to handle it. Uh, tactfully and, uh, and be aware of a number of uh, pitfalls that uh, are linked to who owns these uh, systems, like who owns uh, the system we are now using, who controls the system. And if you go a little bit further, you get into AI, for instance, who, uh, what kind of algorithms are uh, put into that and, and who and who is controlling those? And are there not all kinds of discriminatory uh, ideas in it, etc. So we have to be very, this has to be handled also and also requires political decisions to control, to try to control it. And therefore you also have to be as aware of that. And as a user, consumer of these goods, you also have to be. Mm-hmm. That's the shadow side of it. But the light side of it is that we can communicate like we do. I do not have to travel to Vienna, although I would like to, mm-hmm. but it helps, you know, it helps to uh, to to diminish uh, the uh, the, the the costs of flying of the net the net the uh, the, the, uh, the uh, uh, climate impact and... the climate impact of of flying uh, although I must say using these systems I think about four percent of uh, how do you call this stuff that's blown into the air in English uh, CO two about four percent at the moment 
is caused by using these systems. And that data center, and it's expected that it will grow into 30% in the, in the next 10 or 15 by this big data center. Just to note, uh, using AI has a really big impact because it's using a lot of energy yeah, and it's yeah. a hidden impact because people don't yeah. don't really know about it because the technology is just uh, emerging. Yeah. So there is no there is no there is no free ride here. There's no free ride. Everything we do has immediately, in this case, uh, impact on the climate uh, and others, a social impact, but it also does good things like. Digitization is is very good because we can reach our our colleagues all over the world. I'm actually challenging this idea of digitalization being good in in the documentary around when it comes to the quality of the coaching that, or I, I I'm starting at least a dialogue around uh, what may be the because my philosophy is that everything has got sort of a light and a shadow side, at least one. A one one a light and shadow side. So the the idea is okay logically to following up on this is like how about digitalization having a light and shadow side when it comes to the quality of coaching that can be delivered in online on online platforms. And I am very much aware of what you have written about about this, and and that's why I was I I'm really keen on inviting you to just share in one or two sentences what is it? How do you see? that potentially digitalization may impact the quality of coaching that can happen on online platforms, if at all. Okay, the, 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 it is possible that uh, the, the limitations of, you know, uh, like, for instance, non-verbal signals, uh, which are more difficult to notice and to follow up on uh, on screen and even on, certainly on podcast, that it get, will get better, that systems get better. So uh, I'm not so pessimistic about that but then still the quality of coaching as a phenomenon is threatened by uh, the the, the uh, a very new delivery model which is going very fast that is that we humans are not necessary uh, needed anymore we can coach by algorithms and that means that at the moment that you have to standardize the problem definition and so that it fits into the systems the algorithms and then the algorithm uh, it can give beautiful uh, answers or, re or react beautifully. And it will develop itself very fast. But the problem for, for the time being is at least, and I think it will take a long time to get that better, is that you have to standardize the problem formula. And mm -hmm. that immediately impacts the, the, uh, the quality of coaching. You miss out on all the contingencies, the unclarities, which I, which the quality of coaching is the unclarity of it, the contingencies that you're not knowing what to do, what, looking each other in the eye and saying, what the heck is going on here? That that makes up at least part of the quality. And with machine coaching, this is going to be very straight and, uh, and efficient yeah. on the on the basis of standardized and this, this principle is already something like 50, 60 years old. Already writes about this, this, this the famous ELISA robot. It's in a very early bot, actually a program. You had to type in questions and then uh, he would, uh, this machine, this ELISA would answer uh, with Rogerian quotes like, huh? uh, hmm? oh, oh, are you saying that you are feeling guilty? But you know, I'm feeling guilty. Oh, you say you're feeling it. And it went on and on and people, even people said, oh, Go away, you know, finally being listened to. That was on the 70s. So that's really possible. But 
this is what we want. Yeah, this is what we want. We want some reason. Okay, so because we are nearing the top of our time, uh, I have a last question to you for today, uh, Zitze, is, um, and to Michael as well, uh, to you both, is why would you, from your experience, having participated with me on this journey and having made your contribution from your own specific ends, why would you recommend the people to watch it? What's in for them? If they watch documentary, do you think? I would implore them to watch it because it would gratify my work. So that's a selfish reason. But if you are interested in coaching or coach yourself, the light and the shadow side, the positive and the negative, are, is really rarely talked about. And in the documentary, a multitude of different Opinions, experts, coaches uh, have contributed their voice. And I think it's a really good way of having different impressions, different ideas in a really consumable way. So would you say it's commodified? <laughs> yeah, of course it is. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. It's, 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 uh, it's very difficult to escape that because we are part of society. We cannot just step out. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but we can try to counter it by being aware of it. That, that's the first step. Uh, but, but I think this is very, very, and not only this part, but what you're going to make of it together and, uh, with all the other colleagues, I think it's very worthwhile because you put your heart in it. And if people put their heart in what they're doing, then, then, then that's always it. It, what makes it interesting to, to put a, to put one's heart in it? Because it, this is, it's touching me really how you are saying it, because I, it feels like, yeah, yeah, that's how it is. And at the same time, I'm wondering, so so what? So what? As a coach, I should not give you tips or advices, I believe. But why doubt your heart? Why it's doubt a question. Why doubt the it's heart? A, it's, yeah, it's a question. It's not an advice. It's a question. So I did well here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's really a very nice way of... Um, <laughs> of closing it uh, Zita thank you so so much Michael thank you so so much and as we are nearing the top of our time I would like to just briefly close in my usual manner so uh, dear audience if you are interested in getting instant access to the documentary please go to www.coachingdocu.com and if you have comments or questions and how you can be part of this initiative, drop us a line at podcast at coachingdocu.com. This is a light and shadow of coaching in and beyond organizations production, a documentary that was made to fund social impact through coaching for women in Kenya. And this is my guest, Sita De Rose. And it was, and it's so rewarding to speak to you. And I really feel like as if there were so many more things to share through your rich experience, the freshness of how you're looking at things. Thank you so, so much for all that you have contributed to this endeavor so far, Michael also, and that we made it possible together so far. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Michael, for dealing with my my unclear sentences every now and then. But, uh, Okay. It was a pleasure. <laughs> so staying tuned and until next time, guys. Have a lot of success. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.